If Christ is king, how should the Christian consider the kingdoms of this world? What does the Bible teach us about human authority and what it means to love our neighbors and our enemies? Before we render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, let's know what it means to render unto God what is God's. This is the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, the modern prophetic voice against war and empire. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute and part of the Christians for Liberty Podcast Network. This week and every week on Biblical Anarchy, we seek to live counterculture to the empire of man and to instead seek the kingdom of God by unpacking what the Bible teaches about government, authority, and human relationships. I am your host, Jacob Daniel. For today's episode, this is pulling something out of the vault. This is a couple-year-old conversation I had with our good friend Gregory Baus, who has been on this podcast once and is a fellow host in the Christians for Liberty Network. Him and Carrie Baldwin are the hosts of the Reformed Libertarians podcast, and I highly recommend that you check that podcast out if you haven't already. But on my old podcast, the Daniel 3 podcast, I had Greg as well as Carrie on several times each. And there were conversations from that old podcast that I felt like it doesn't make sense to try to recreate them, you know, because we did, I think, just a good job the first go around. So I've gone back and dug up that old episode and clipped out some of the unnecessary parts because back then that show was a live stream. And so some of the stuff that was included just doesn't need to be included anymore. And I've had our good friends at Podsworth Media edit it to make it sound better because back then neither Greg nor I were using anywhere near as good of equipment or editing techniques as we are using now. So of course, want to plug Chris at Podsworth, who does an amazing job editing my podcast as well as editing the flagship Libertarian Christian podcast with Doug Stewart. So this is a conversation on the idea of sphere sovereignty, which I won't get too much into detail about what that is because Greg and I get very much into defining sphere sovereignty in the upcoming conversation. But suffice to say that Greg and I think that sphere sovereignty is an important idea in the discussion of unpacking what the Bible does teach about government and human authority and relationships. And the idea of authority and what is normative in terms of what the Bible teaches us about authority in its different shapes and forms is sort of what sphere sovereignty deals with. And it also deals with sort of the unpacking of what God's creation and natural order looks like. It is not exactly opposed to, but sometimes is contrasted with the two kingdoms way of looking at things, which I just want to say I'm not totally against the two kingdoms view. And that is going to be a upcoming podcast episode topic in the future as well, because I think Two Kingdoms is a, again, not opposite view, but contrasted view. Then I think that, you know, as we're talking about these ideas, I also wanted to preface this by saying that when we're talking about models 
outside of what is explicitly taught in scripture. There's a difference of holding things, in my opinion, and the phraseology I like to use is holding things with an open hand or a closed hand. And, you know, there are certain doctrines and concepts that I hold as a Christian with closed hand. You know, I hold the Trinity with a closed hand. I hold the atonement. I hold penal substitution, the forgiveness of sins. You know, these are things that are core to the gospel, core to what the scripture teaches. And I hold those with a closed hand, so to speak. And then there's other things that I feel like are useful and I'm compelled or convicted to believe are true, but I hold these with an open hand and I view these things as explanations of complicated and complex moving ideas within scripture. And these man-made models or theories are ways to distill or to crystallize those moving pieces and to make them more understandable, but they can be at times maybe incomplete or imperfect in their explanation. With all that caveat out of the way, (laughs) just to pad the runtime, as my joke likes to go. That's all I have to say here at the opening. This is a longer conversation, so maybe you'll have to split it up into two or three sit downs and listens, but we cover a lot of ground here. And so I hope you enjoy this conversation. Greg, how are you doing tonight, man? I'm doing good. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for coming on. For people who have watched the show for a long time before it grew to what it is today, they, they or if you, you know just watched in, in general, they might have seen that I've, I've had Greg on before, but it's been a while. You know, it's funny that we actually live somewhat close to each other, but we still haven't, <laughs> we haven't found a way to connect yet and do anything in person, which we, we need to do sometime. Uh, grab a, grab a yeah, beer or something. We'll, yeah. we'll meet up in New York. I know a couple good brew pubs there. Yeah, for sure. But for those, you know, for anyone who's tuning in and who isn't familiar with you, haven't watched the prior episode, maybe just give like a, I don't know, two, three minute introduction of like your background and kind of like what led you to the ideals of Christian anarchism. Well, I'm originally from Baltimore, grew up there for the most part. And then initially I went to university in around Chattanooga and then Canada and then Amsterdam. And then I spent, you know, half a career overseas in Asia. And then in various parts, I was for a a time in Japan and then Cambodia and then China. And most recently, although it's been a while now, I was in Budapest, Hungary, teaching English. But that was my second career. (laughs) And I'm back to my first career, which is being a lifetime student of philosophy. And yeah, you had you had initially when you had promoted the thing, you said biblical scholar, but I am not a biblical scholar, nor the son of a biblical scholar. (laughs) (laughs) But I but I but I am a student of philosophy. I wanted to plug a friend's theology podcast at some point. Anyway, just to give people a feel if they're interested for this kind of thing, if they're curious, if they're Theo curious, Theo curious. (laughs) Let's see. So these days, yeah, I'm living in central Pennsylvania and I am working odd jobs to pay the rent and I'm enrolled in school again at a South African university. But yeah, so I write and research in philosophy, particularly I'm dealing with the work of 
an obscure Dutch philosopher named Herman Doiver, and he'll he'll come up in our yeah. chat. But it was about 2008 that I became a confirmed card-carrying anarchist. Card-carrying. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we need our own cards. I mean, I have like a, I have a, a liber- I'm a card-carrying member of the Libertarian Party, although sometimes that feels worthless. But uh, we should have, you we should have anarchist that. cards. Well, I got it right here just to prove I'm not making it up. They're right there. Nice. I'm a card, card-carrying right. member. Sweet. <laughs> I don't know. So what, what, what else do you want to know? No, it's fine. What do people care about? Well, you know, I always like to ask my guests, you know, like what was, you know, maybe one or two pivotal moments or or arguments or just, you know, things that kind of led them to embracing a- anarchism. I know you kind of went into this in the last podcast too, but, you know, yeah, you just sure. kind of like the, 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 the Reader's Digest version of it. Yeah, well, I had always had something of a classical liberal perspective. But it was when I began to study economics around 2006-ish, while I was in grad school the first time. And that led me, you know, into Austrian perspectives and into Murray Rothbard. So that was that. But, you know, there was this lecture series with the Mises Institute by Roderick Long, who's a philosophy professor at Auburn University, I think. And this is several years back now, over 10 years ago, that he did the series, maybe more, maybe almost 20 years. Anyway, it's called The Foundations of Libertarian Ethics. The original audio is still available on Mises, on Mises.org, but the videos <laughs> sort of disappeared. But Carrie Baldwin, our mutual friend, yeah. re-uploaded them to her channel. So check out Carrie Baldwin or Mere Liberty, whatever it's called. I think it's under her name, Carrie Baldwin, YouTube channel, or just search for Roderick Long Foundations Libertarian Ethics Lecture Series. So the 10th in that series, it was 10, 10 lecture series. The 10th one, he talked about an anarchist legal order and he gave a uh, Lockean critique of Locke. And he basically set up Locke's objections to or reasons for a state objections to a stateless society, and he sort of used them to argue against Locke's reasons, saying that the thing that he was wanting, the reasons that he wanted a state, are reasons for no state. Hmm, yeah, it's kind of like when Michael Malice, and he, he's not the only one that says this, but it's like they'll be like the best arguments against anarchy are really just arguments against the status quo kind of like in that same vein like when people go but warlords would take over it's like well <laughs> what yeah what do you think we have now you know it's just right. one common objection yeah, if you don't want warlords then you don't want the state right <laughs> so anyway that's definitely worth checking out the whole series but especially that last one and if you're a minarchist particularly i think it's it's compelling at least if you're a minarchist for the reasons that i was one which were lockean yeah, you know, I, it's interesting, like, I don't know if it's possible, I'd imagine it's possible, but I don't really know of anyone who fits this, but I don't know anyone who went straight from, like, a regular, like, plain Jane duopoly statist to anarchist. I feel like everyone has to make at least some kind of brief pit stop at, at minarchy. 
but I mean, I guess it's possible, but it's always, it, it makes, you know, kind of like act like when you're trying to reach people and engage in any kind of politically minded activism to change people's minds, it's, it's kind of weird because like, so like when you're doing Christian evangelism, the goal isn't to get them from being a sinner to being a half sinner or a minimal sinner and then to like, and then to embrace Christ. You're trying to get them to come like, you know, come to Christ and repent. But when you're trying to get people to come to like the principles of like anarchism, especially like Austrian libertarianism, it's like you almost have to first like teach them some economics, get them to at least get to that minarchist position first, and then you can push them over the edge. Well, if that's a tendency, just like perhaps it's a tendency for people to adopt some kind of bogus form of Christianity before they become reformed. <laughs> <laughs> Then, um, you know, I don't think that's necessary. So anyway, in in talking to people about these ideas, I, I don't adopt any kind of like halfway strategy. But hmm. but but I think as tendencies go, I think you're right. Just because it's hard to all at once give up our prior assumptions. Right. But yeah. Yeah, that no, makes sense. You know, you talked about so like, I forget the exact phrase you used. We're talking about the, the Lockean critique, but but you, you said it was something order, and that kind of gets into what we were wanting to talk about tonight. Kind of like the, the, these themes. There's there's often this conflation of of anarchism and chaos, and then the state is inherently some kind of agent of of order and authority. And unfortunately, we see a lot of libertarians and anarchists both christian and non-christian but but we we've also seen this a lot within specifically like christian libertarianism who when they become libertarian they they tend to just they almost em- embrace whether they would say this like whether or not they would actually like explicitly say that they're embracing this i kind of think they are they're embracing more of a lawlessness form of anarchism and libertarianism which I've never been a big fan of. And then when I met like you and Kerry Baldwin and, and, you know, people at LCI and stuff, it kind of, you know, that was like where I kind of like nestled in and found my sort of like, you know, helped me to kind of like bridge the gap between like theology and political theory, because I'd always felt like, you know, authority and, and governance don't have to be intrinsically tied to statism, but it, but it's always hard because it's like, I mean, I mean, just the word government has been so, you know, like intrinsically tied to the idea of the, the nation state that if I just say to a person, I'm not against government, they would say, well, you can't be an anarchist. And and yeah. so it, it, it becomes it almost becomes a battle of semantics, which can be rather exhausting. But, you know, what was, you know, I mean, you don't have to go into the exact you know, critique that you were citing there. But I mean, what what are sort of like the arguments that that you use or that you kind of, I don't know, present to people, you know, when, when, we're, when you're starting a conversation with them about how anarchism isn't just like, you know, it, it's not Mad Max. It's not the, what are those, uh, the Purge movies or something like that? Like, it's not, you know, it, it's not chaos. <laughs> <laughs> well, Carrie's got a good series of articles at the Libertarian Christian Institute a series of four articles sort of going through in a way some of what Long covers, the locking critique of Locke. Actually, just maybe the first one, but then she goes into some other things to help 
minarchists sort of move along. But so just look for her material. If you go to mereliberty.com slash Romans 13, you'll see some of my writings there and Carrie's articles are listed there. So that's a good place to go. Well, what I normally talk about with people specifically often depends on where they are and what their actual view is as as I'm coming to understand it, you know, interacting with what they say and think. But, you know, I think amongst our fellow, let's say, confessional reformed fellow believers, you know, we can say we affirm the reformed confessions on the teaching of the civil magistrate. And we just don't think that the the form of civil magistrate has to be a monopoly state. And, and, and that's honest and, and true. <laughs> and what they affirm does not require a monopoly state, thankfully. If they did, we'd have to modify it. But in any case, one of the key points is the idea of a third-party arbiter, right? Yeah. So one of the principles of adjudicating disputes is that no one should be a judge in their own case. And if you have a monopoly adjudicator, which is what the state claims in terms of its power or position or jurisdiction or monopoly or whatever, then you have a conflict of a fundamental justice. There's some Latin term for it, but whatever. It's it's a major issue and statism conflicts with that. So it inherently conflicts with the principles of civil justice. So that that's a great point to to bring up that no one has an no one has a coherent answer for that leaves the state in a position of being justifiable. But yeah, so I guess our topic tonight being sphere sovereignty, occasionally I'll bring that up. That is like some of the things that we've been talking about. There is uh there's certain things you can say biblically or about the Bible, and then there's political theory. Sure. And that's important to make a distinction between those things because, of course, we think you can be a Christian and be confused about political issues, have, have, a, have a bad political philosophy. We think that's possible. Your Christianity doesn't depend on having those things right. Yeah. But, I mean, there, there, there's some out there that, that think that that's the case, but they're just confused. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So... I think it's important to point out that, you know, what we're talking about here, what we're about to talk about anyway, is not theology, it's not exegesis from the Bible, but we call it a Christian view of things because it's informed by our understanding of what God's word says. Sure. So, yeah. And that, yeah, that's the topic yeah, for tonight, sphere sovereignty. Where does that come from? I mean, you know, like the, the originator of it. And, you know, I don't know, I don't know how much you know of, like I, I've started to study kind of like the history of the, the I, I'm not quite through all the, like I, I've, I've been studying church history and I've, I got like to the point of the Reformation, but I haven't gotten past Calvin yet. So I've, I've yet to get to the Dutch reformers from a his, like the, the history of it yet. I was trying to get there before this episode, but just like, I only have so much time to read and do stuff. So I don't know how much you know about the history. I don't know if it's that important, but 
what yeah, is exactly. the idea? What is the idea of sheer sovereignty? Where did it originate from? And, you know, what are like the, you know, historical events, maybe that if they played a role in that creation, you know, that are at play? All right. So as a brief definition or to characterize sphere sovereignty, it's a view of the normative arrangement and relations between different kinds of societal communities. So we, we've got all these societal communities, they're of different kinds, and somehow they're arranged with respect to each other, somehow they relate to each other. And that, that's what sphere sovereignty addresses. And initially, I think the, the words, the phrase, sovereignty in its own sphere or sovereignty in its own circle was, I don't know if it was coined exactly by Guillaume Grun von Prinsterer. And wait a minute. Gotta, you could have completely check. mispronounced that and nobody would have, no one would challenge yeah. you right now. <laughs> I, like, I like to call, I like to right. call him uh, Billy Green. Billy because Green. Uh, Guillaume is, <laughs> no one calls him Billy Green, by the way. Okay. Uh, Guillaume is like Willem or William, and Grun was his family oh, okay. name. And Prinsterer was like, like, right. his title, you know. So his dates were 1801 to 1876, around the the Hague in Den Haag in the Netherlands, and he was sort of part of the. Well, he he was heavily influenced by, I guess, what was called the revival or the revival or the awakening of Calvinism, sort of after the Enlightenment in in Western Europe. So Switzerland, Scotland, Germany, hmm, yeah, the Netherlands, some other places like that. So maybe in England as well. And neo-Calvinism as a movement sort of came out of the Calvinistic reawakening at that time in the 1800s. Was it, was it partly out of like, because it wasn't Protestantism of all brands sort of like heavily restricted and persecuted for much of like the 17th and like 16th, 16th and 17th centuries, at least in a lot of these areas. Yeah, earlier, earlier in the 1500s and 1600s. But then when the wars of religion ended, things kind of settled out. But then the Enlightenment came in and secularization and quote unquote historical modernist, whatever, enlightenment. Right. Yeah. Nationalism and thinking undermined Christian theology quite a lot. Not in small part due to the fact that. The churches were state churches. And so when the official universities and religious schools controlled by the state went liberal, it had a negative influence on the church. So that's just a hmm. historical lesson on why churches... Nothing like that's not happening be, today. <laughs> not be connected to the state. In any case, so Tom Prinsterer, or a lot of people just call him Grun, he initially came up with the phrase. He was involved, I guess, at the time in the Netherlands. A fellow that came in towards the end of his career named Abraham Kuyper was really instrumental in focusing that into more of a concrete idea, developing that more. And then later, generation later, the philosopher Hermann Doivert, who was... 1894 to 1977. And 
All right. So, so those are some of the people. It actually goes back a little bit earlier in some of its conception to Johannes Althusius. Let me try to remember his dates. Although he had largely, his work, Politica, had largely been forgotten until it was revived by Otto von Gerke right, right around the time of Kuiper. So it's, it's unlikely that Kuiper was aware of his work, but he mentions this guy, another Johann or Johannes Alsted, who was also a Calvinist political thinker. Anyway, Althusius was 1557 to 1638, so early 1600s. He had a notion, sometimes it's called consociationalism, or maybe it's called that now. I don't know if it was called that then, but in any case, Kuiper comes around in the 1860s, 70s, 1880s. He died in 1920, and he really started to developed the notion of sphere sovereignty as societal communities and their the way they're arranged, how they relate to each other, particularly with respect to the state, non-state communities in relation to the state. And that was the basis of the idea was in the Reformation, you had this question, you know, during the medieval period, basically up to that time, the Roman church was claiming temporal power, right? So the Roman Catholic Church said the papacy right, or, or, or the Roman uh, church had power of the sword. And when the Reformation came in, let's say from at least the 1520s, with the 1550s and so on, particularly Calvinist Reformed thinkers wanted to the the if the monopoly so to speak the religious monopoly of the roman church was broken and the state kind of stepped in to fill the power vacuum they were trying to make room again for the church and non-state communities so in other words if the state if the church gave up its claim to temporal power to sword power to coercive power, mm-hmm. then you can see how the state would have this incentive to grab it all. And you see the rise of absolute monarchy around this time. Mm. Right. So initially, the reformed thinkers were trying to, you see this reaction against monarchical absolutism, absolute monarchy. Right. Right. So, so that's, that's sort of the, that's what gets it going. And particularly because you have, say, Roman Catholic princes or kings or whatever persecuting Calvinist Christians in different, particularly France and other places. It was a little iffy with the Lutherans there in parts of Germany <laughs> and so on. But yeah, so it begins with this idea of, it, what we would call now in some ways separation of church and state, although it was articulated somewhat differently then because they also had civil, civilly established churches. So we see this idea of getting more refined, but they were, were wanting to limit the power of the government to be able to resist tyranny 
So it sort of begin it begins in in that kind of way, and sure. then in the, the rise of modernism, there's sort of this historical consciousness about the development of pluriformity, multiple different kinds of si- societal communities, right? And in, in, so in the medieval times, you had sort of this idea of the three estates, whatever it was. The you had the the nobles, the nobility the bishops and the church and the commoners. Hmm. And somehow, and some people sort of modify that idea into there's, you know, some basic institutions of civil government of the church and family, right? So you can see how thinking about society not being just this undifferentiated whole, just one thing of it, of it has sort of having different parts and that's something about taking account respecting those different parts of society, those different ways that human society is organized is important, right? And it's important in terms of limit, limiting any one part of society's power. Think of it in terms of something like division of labor. Yeah, I was going to make that comparison. I was going to say it kind of sounds like yeah. division of labor within, within authority structure. communal life. Yeah, yeah. I mean, communal life. One thing I think we can point listeners to is the statement, what is reformed anarchism? The reformed there refers to reformed Christianity, although if it has a side implication for reforming anarchism, that's okay too. But anyway, (laughs) if you go to tinyurl.com, T-I-N-Y-U-R-L.com slash refo anarchism, R-E-F-O anarchism, you should find the documents there. And that has three basic parts. We're talking about from our perspective, what is culture, what is society, and then what is civil governance. And as far as, I don't know, so maybe we could start uh, breaking down the basic points of sphere sovereignty. Yeah, I say, so, so you've explained it, that that makes a lot of sense, the historical context to what was playing into all of this. So... Yeah, we could start breaking down, I guess, like the 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 finer points of it, and like where you know what what they're. Like, I know we're not like doing a deep exegesis here, but what like what parts of scripture are informing the 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 different points? Well, before I bring in some different scriptures that might lend itself to an understanding, well, let me see. That would be the best way. Well, okay, let me start with this. One thing that as I remember, Kuiper, at least, Doiverd brought into the discussion was that in creation, right, God makes different kinds of things, each according to their own kind. Hmm. So that phrase from Genesis and the basic narrative of what we see God doing in creating the world is creating things different from each other. And that basic diversity in creation is crucial also to to human life, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not just a diversity in the quote-unquote natural order, but that human life was to develop and be fruitful according to a variety. Kuiper has this great article, I forget the exact dates, let me see if I can remember the title, something like in translation, he uses the word uniformity 
And it's something like the, I can't remember. Oh, darn it. It's not going to me. Anyway, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll send the link. But he's talking about how bad <laughs> modern life is in trying to make everything uniform. And of course, this is like one of the key characteristics of authoritarianism and totalitarianism, this horrible, anti-humane, making everything the same. This, yeah. this comes up again and again. Yeah, and does it connect? Impulse. Yeah, good. Does it does it does it connect to like the? Uh, I don't know if Kuiper ever brought this up, but like where my mind goes is the passage. You know, I forget. If, I think it's Corinthians, but I could be wrong. But where like Paul's talking about the body of Christ and like you know the hand says I'm not a foot, and you right. know what it, it, is it kind of like that where yeah. it's like yeah. recognize or does like, refer to that. Yeah, yeah, because it's like different different areas of of competence, and that kind of directs where you're authority is supposed to go, I guess, is sort of what I was thinking. Yeah, right. That That's exactly the idea. So that's sort of an organism, an organic metaphor, and that in an organism, I guess there may be that, you know, single-celled organisms. Oh, there's still differentiation in these yeah. single-celled organisms, but <laughs> with, with this development of complexity, we have different parts doing different functions, and that's the picture of the world that we get and how important that, how respecting that diversity, that variety is important to understanding human life and human communal life. So there are, I don't know, let me think, maybe the first two sections under society from the what is reformed anarchism, if I sort of like, read that out and then explicate it a little bit. Sure. That might be a way into it. Okay. So tinyurl.com slash refoanarchism section two or part two we have under A. So is it, what, what is society? We've already discussed what is culture. We can touch on that maybe if that comes into it. But in any case, A is neither individualistic nor collectivistic. Society is not a single whole, right? And this is, this is really key because normally we, because it's like this collective noun, we just sort of think of it as one thing. But this is fundamental to understanding our perspective on ultimately our opposition to monopoly on civil governance. But society itself is not a single whole. Rather, by society, we mean the numerous individual and communal relations of several varieties. There are inter-individual relations, right? communal relations, and inter-communal relations. So if you think about an individualistic, not individualism in terms of methodological individualism, but an individualistic view of society, right? the basic idea is there's just individuals. And maybe if they're atomists or some sort of extreme version, they think groups are illusory, right? Mm. They're just yeah. communities are illusory. They're just aggregates of individuals. With collectivism, it's sort of the reverse, right? And you see this in some early Greek thought and totalitarians and collectivists of all kinds have sort of, you know, continued this idea that there's just the group and then, you know, People are only what they are in relation to this whole, and the whole is greater than its parts, this kind of thing. But you need a both-end perspective. 
right? right. Not in terms yeah. of both individualism and collectivism, but both individuals and groups. Yeah. And they're both real. So you have inter-individual relations, communal relations, and intercommunal relations. While only individuals act, neither society nor any communal relation can be properly reduced to only inter-individual relations. So this is a denial of individualistic view of society. It's not just individuals. Communities and other groups are real, right? So families are actually a thing. It's not yeah. illusion. It's not when a husband and wife, their marriage and either by natural birth or adoption or whatever, and there's children, this family unit is actually a thing. And its difference from other things needs to be understood and respected for society to operate, just as one example. An individual is never a mere part of a given community of which they are a member. Communal relations differ from inter-individual relations in being comparatively more enduring and involving authority arrangements, right? So that idea is, for example, in a family, let's say a child dies or the mother or the or husband or wife dies, the mother or father dies, they're still, they're still a family. But members of the family are not just members of the family. They're individuals in their own right. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and at the same time, the whole, the whole community... Like the family still exists, but if one individual within the family dies, the, the group, the community relationships and the, I don't know, like I'm trying to think of the right word here, like the well, nature the of that. self persists. Right. But it's, but it, but it does kind of fundamentally change a little bit, doesn't it? Like if, if you have a family, like, yeah. you know, like, like I have three kids right now, if I died, the family would still exist, but the family without the father, the kids being raised without the father, it, it suddenly fundamentally, you know, the, the, that, that group has changed so it's yeah. kind of like i kind of like what you said kind of a both and kind of like like groups are are real and individuals are real and i've had this conversations with other christians before who are libertarian minded because a lot of times and i get where they're coming from because collectivism kind of like a lot of the a lot of words you're using are, are things that like are good but the left has weaponized them and corrupted them diversity groups kind of like you know the ideas of communal living and stuff like sometimes these words have been like a lot of people push back against them because they've right. seen just like we're talking about with sphere sovereignty and the idea of authority another thing that's been hijacked but i don't know that that was just no that's right we want to we want to uh recognize realities in human existence and try to account for them without explaining away without having to explain away elements of them in order to justify other parts. That's what we don't want to do. We don't right. want to have a, we want to account for the full phenomena. Yeah. So in any case, we're just touching on how inter-individual relations differ from a communal relation. And one of the differences is that communal relations can be relatively more enduring and than the individual's. And there's a uh, authority structure. So between you and me, we would say we have an inter-individual relation, let's say for this podcast, and we're, we're operating basically as 
equals in the exchange, right? In some ways, there there's different functions in this particular relation. You're the host, I'm the guest. In some ways, it's like it's your podcast, right? Mm-hmm. So there is a kind of ownership privilege there that doesn't equally apply to me. But that's not the same thing as a more enduring, let's say, like business. Like, let's say you and I partner to do a podcast together. And then, well, anyway. So there's ways to differentiate what's an inter-individual relation and what's a communal relation. Right. Neither individuals nor communities are more basic than or have their origin in the other. That was a negative. So neither one is more basic. Neither has their origin in the other. Individuals and various communities are themselves wholes, ultimately structured or normed by God in creation. In this sense, we we reject both individualistic and collectivistic view of society. Okay, so that's just 2A. That sort of gives the big picture. Now, with sphere sovereignty, what's being talked about is this normative arrangement and relations between different kinds of societal communities. So there's other, there's other re- basic relations in society. Society's not just communities. It's also inter- indiv- inter-individual relations and intercommunal relations. But what we're talking about now is these basic communities. So we say there are distinct communal spheres. So this word sphere can just be understood to mean kind of communities, right? So there's the familial sphere, meaning there are families. That's one kind of community is family. There are many different families, but, or businesses, right? Yeah. So these are different kinds and there's many of those communities. Then there's like overlapping things. Like I, I work in a family business, which that's an interesting like way to like analyze. Like there's, there's this weird, like I'm working with my father and my brother, but then it's like our working relationships have different rules and the authority structures are, are different than the way the authority structures work when it's just like the, the basic like relationship between like me and my father and me and my brother. And so that, that, that's always an interesting, like, you know, when I, when I think about our everyday interactions and when I was young and learning those dynamics, kind of going, hey, my relationship with my boss and my father are like different, even though they're the same person. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. So as the same person, the communal relation, at least normatively, right now, like he might. So if you mess up at work, you know, this doesn't apply because you're an adult on your own. But let's <laughs> say you were a kid and you were right. getting an allowance. If you mess up at work, he's not going to dock your allowance, or at least he shouldn't. That that That's different. That's a different arrangement. I'm not saying every kid should get an allowance, but whatever. I'm just something as an example. Your pay at work maybe gets docked, right? Yeah. So this is an example of, of, of saying where the lines are in terms of the structurally different relationship. And these are normative in the sense of shoulds, right? So we think these are ways of analyzing 
how are these things put together and what sort of proper structure goes along with what they inherently are. Okay, so <laughs> where were we? Okay, so we're just saying there are distinct kinds of communities. Each kind of community is distinguished from other kinds by its own intrinsic nature, differently characterized in its organization and purpose, right? So the purpose of a family business is not for a parent to raise their children. Yeah. The purpose of the business is to do business. <laughs> yeah. And that's different than the purpose, the internal organization. It's different than the intrinsic nature of the family. Governed. Okay, let me back up. Uh, each kind of community is distinguished from other kinds by its own intrinsic nature, differently characterized in its organization and purpose, governed by its own God-given norms. For example, there are familial or ecclesial faith or political civil or commercial or social or charitable or medical or educational or aesthetic arts kinds of communities, among others. So we're just listing some different varieties to give examples of, of the kind of differences we're talking about. These are not, can't be reduced to each other. They're not the same kind of community. Right. No single kind of community pro properly encompasses or re regulates all the others, right? So according to those differences and how their, their intrinsic nature and how they're organized and their purposes and all that kind of thing, you don't have one kind of community that encompasses all the others. Right. So if you think about a Venn diagram, you're not going to draw a big circle and all the other circles in it. And particularly, obviously, you're not going to draw the state, although this is the statist conception, the collectivistic conception of society. Yeah, how, right. how is it arranged graphically in their minds? You have this big circle <laughs> and every other kind of community is just inside it. And that's the yeah. thing. And we're denying that model. We're saying that model is flawed. Yeah. Um, I mean, my, my, when I was in uh, middle school and I got into a fight, the vice principal told my dad, when your son is here in our school, he's, he's our child, not yours, which, crazy. which is, yeah, which is that like, no, it's like, you don't, you don't have that kind of a, you know, like you have authority over me insofar as like, you're my principal and my teacher. So like what I do in school and on your private property, yes, you have a certain control over that, but you don't have the kind of authority over me that my parents have over me. So to call you, to call me your child when I'm on the premises is, is, is completely in error. Yeah, that's a clear authoritarian, collectivistic, or whatever, reductionistic, maybe. He's absolutizing the authority of the school, in that case, over a kid. Okay. And really, it's the state, because the schools are the extension of the state, state now. Exactly. So <laughs> Statism. That's the yep. only reason anybody would say something so stupid. Right. Um, so, no single kind of community properly encompasses or regulates all the others, nor does any particular community of a given kind properly encompass or regulate all the others of that same kind. So you don't have, despite the wishes of the mafia, <laughs> you don't have, they're a criminal organization, not just a family, but they're a crime family, like business. But you don't just have one family that's like ruling all the other families, right? That's not how we, now like, like right. in a tribal, in a less differentiated, less developed sort of form of society, things might be, seemingly organized that way 
But ultimately, that's not the normative development in society. So if we start out, you know, tribally, everyone's basically related. <laughs> you can have sort of those blurrings of the lines, but as society becomes more complex and developed, it follows this differentiation of, of, of norms in this way. Each kind of community has its own particular function and its own kind of limited authority and competence directly ordained by God and not mediated by any other kind. This, this point that it's not a mediated competence or authority is important in this next, this next part. Anyway, so we say this has been called sphere sovereignty. So we introduce the term. Then we say we reject the collectivistic view of so-called subsidiarity. Now, subsidiarity, sometimes even Althusius's views were referred to as subsidiarity, while the Catholics also aren't the Roman Catholics that adopted that phrase. As it's developed in a collectivistic sense, it's it's very problematic. So we're we're distinguishing that view and saying you can't associate sphere sovereignty and subsidiary according to this collectivistic idea of it, in which while seeking to be bottom up, affirming that the lowest level of organization has original jurisdiction, nevertheless subsumes all societal communities as so-called mediating institutions, right? If you've read any of these uh, Catholic conservatives, like on first things, they really like this phrase, mediating institutions between the individual and the state. And this is a flawed notion. Subsumes all societal communities under an all-encompassing state. So some people have this idea, basically, that there's a hierarchy. Right. Right. So they're not just going to say the state, they're going to try to nuance, I guess, the collectivistic idea by putting into a hierarchy and putting the original jurisdiction and sort of motivation from power. They want to say it's got to be bottom up, right? Mm. And we're saying that's, that's not sphere sovereignty. That idea of just, it's all still one thing and we're decentralizing and right. bringing it down to the grassroots. That's the best they have to offer. And we're saying, no, we have, we have a different conception of because that's still collectivistic and we're rejecting that. Sure. So that, that was the two points from, hope that wasn't too no, much good. for anybody. No, good. I, 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 so I, I kind of like bullet pointed here in four points. So let, let me try to summarize. Sure. So when we're talking about sphere sovereignty. The first thing we want to say is that there are distinct kinds of communities, right? So that differentiates us from an individualistic view because we believe communities are real. It differentiates us from a collectivistic view because we're saying there are basic different kinds. So that's the first point. There are, there are communities <laughs> and they are, there are several distinct kinds of communities. The second point is that each kind of community has its own intrinsic nature and jurisdiction, if you will, its own scope of activity and particular function, its own limited authority and competence directly ordained by God in Christ, according to God-given norms. So start to think about what those were, that those were listed, self-governance being different from ecclesial, that is the church, from the family, 
from businesses, from healthcare. That's an important one. Yeah. <laughs> that has its own functions, education even. Yeah. So that's the second point that they're differently characterized. The third point would be against this collectivistic subsidiarity or just like a kind of mere keeping a kind of collectivism, but then trying to improve it by way of just an idea of decentralization, right? Sure. If you have a group, decentralizing power might be an appropriate and good thing. But if you're trying to encompass society as a whole, simply sort of like decentralizing it and trying to drive power to the bottom is not an adequate conception of society or protection against tyranny. And that's a, that's a key thing to realize. No, no kind of community is rightly mediated by, nor does it encompass or regulate any other kind. It's not a hierarchy, although there might be a hierarchy, you know, a particular authority arrangement in some community, the communities themselves or the kinds of communities themselves are not hierarchically. Right. I mean, like to put it in my own words and kind of, well, kind of your words too. It's like, it's not a pyramid. It's literally like what you said, it's the Venn diagram that are, you know, there are overlaps at times, but they're not just all within one pyramid that's going down. So to right. Speak. An overlap, an overlap might be in terms of, let's say, individuals and families or households in a church, right? Yeah. So your membership in the church is related to your membership in the family, but it's not wholly dependent on that or it's not subsumed by that and vice versa, right? Sure. So that yeah. families are not, you know, a given family can't itself be a church. <laughs> And some people have gone with that, like patriarchalists and, and, and people like that. They have these wacky ideas. You know, theonomists have distorted these things quite a bit over the years and have had those kinds of problems, not being able to differentiate. In any case, so there's no hierarchical arrangement, although they are connected or coordinated in various different ways. We talked about family business and then families in the church also an educational institution, and so on. So the last part is no particular community of any given kind encompasses or regulates others of its own kind. Um, mm. So no mafia family. Right, yeah. <laughs> so those are the four points. There are communities and there's different kinds. Second, each has its own intrinsic nature that's different. They're not hierarchically arranged and within any given kind, there's no single one that encompasses them all. And of course, when we come to the issue of civil governance, this is what the state is doing. Mm -hmm. Even if it's federalized, even if it's mm -hmm. decentralized, it's still a monopolistic organization. I think my dad used to tell me, uh, you can polish a turd, but... Uh... <laughs> You're that's, still holding a, still holding a pile of SHIT in your hand. <laughs> that 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 that's that's essentially what the idea of it's it's the direction federalism was going in or decentralization was going in to protect against tyranny. Of course, that was their obvious intention, separation of powers and all this kind of thing. But if you have a monopoly, 
it's in principle totalitarian. Right. And in practice will inevitably always tend towards increasing totalitarianism in practice. Yeah, and, that makes sense. So, so, right, so that, that's the basic idea of sphere sovereignty. It's distinct from a more narrow political theory or political philosophy, which would concern civil governance or rights as such. Sphere sovereignty is part of a broader, what we might call societal ontology, right? So what we started with, with these basic different kinds of relations in society, society is not just a single thing. It's, it's, it's constituted by these basically different kinds of relations, right? individual, inter-individual, communal, and intercommunal. This is sort of like a societal ontology, a theoretical view of the being of what society is. And then this is focusing on an idea of an arrangement between different kinds of communities. Right. And then I guess you could say, I mean, there's two connections between sphere uh, that I'm, there might be more, but the two I'm mainly seeing here, one that you've kind of already touched on very well, which is like, you know, the ideas of uh, the ideas of sphere sovereignty push back against the idea that like, there's this one giant group that monopolizes all the different relationships and, and different groups that exist. And then two, I guess the second thing that I'm and this kind of goes to the things we've talked about before that there is within the different types of groups and different types of relationships, one of those different categories would then be people who, I guess, act in the role of authority when they're like administering civil justice or upholding civil justice. That might be one. Well, like, would you say that's one type of of group or or relationship that exists? Right. There be people exactly. that do so that in our in our statement. What is reformed anarchism? The third section gets at that. So we specify, we do our best to, in as concise way as possible, talk about what is it that forms the kind of community known as that we're calling civil governance. And it has to do with adjudicating disputes over rights violations. And that being normed by self-ownership or it's sort of obligatory corresponding principle, the non-aggression principle, right? So what's the obligation of the fact that we have self-ownership? My obligation, given your self-ownership, is non-aggression. And that norms the understanding of rights in terms of not initiating coercion against other people's persons or property. Yeah. And that adjudicating disputes over those things, according to the norms of civil justice, is what defines the community, the kind of community of civil civil governance. It is, civil governance is adjudicating those kinds of disputes. But the people that do that, they only have that computational authority to do that which is prescribed. Like, like they can adjudicate those disputes, but then right. they can't come into your household so and say, here's how you raise your children. Here's what you need to teach them in school. Here's, here, you know, oh, and by the way, instead of the relationship between me and you being voluntary, we're now going to claim 
20% of your wealth because, you know, we, we you know, like it, it, it's a abuse of the type of authority they have. Yeah. So the other, the other Christian or biblical principle besides the basic diversity in creation that comes into this has to do with God's own absolute sovereign authority over all things that he created. Because that's true, that means no human authority can be absolute. Sure. Right? That's what, so, so let that sink in for a minute. Not only, so, so these are the two main biblical or Christian principles that we would draw to sort of inform that underwrite the idea of sphere sovereignty, this sort of basic diversity in creation in reality, and then the fact that God's sovereignty is absolute. And that's what, in a way, guarantees the non-absolute character or the relative character, the limited character of all human authority. And that undermines the idea of the state completely. It is a pagan notion. Mm. The state cannot be a Christian notion because yeah. it yeah. is claim in its essence, in what it is, this idea of the monopoly is totalistic, is absolute, and is a rival to God's own, own God's only, his soul, only God has absolute authority. Yeah. Absolute it, sovereignty. Pretty much what God said in First Samuel 8. It's just like, when you guys asked for a king, and the justification they gave was, we want to be like the the people around us who all have kings. They were they were mixing with they wanted they were being influenced by the pagan cultures around them. God said it's a form of idolatry. You're 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 abusing. You're wanting to submit to authorities that aren't me, and I'm the only true one authority. And the idea of a king is kind of like in in stark contradiction to that. And and yeah, it, he's a yeah. uh, pointing to the idolatry, right? So attributing to something else what only belongs to God. That, that, that definitely comes out. Nevertheless, in redemptive history, God is able to use, he still limits, he still limits in instituting the monarchy in old covenant theocratic Israel, right? That's, yeah. that's under a different covenant. So that's important to recognize, but he still allows for its institution according to his own, he still norms it limit in a limited fashion, right? Now he says, you're going to abuse this. You're going to distort this. This is going to go bad for you. Yeah. <laughs> but he still then takes that opportunity as it were in redemptive history to appoint the monarchy in a limited fashion for its symbolic purpose of pointing to Christ's own absolute soul, absolute authority. Yeah. In any case, so we can think of plenty of examples of different kinds of, of ways of violating sphere sovereignty as sort of parallel to violating individual rights. So in any given community, an ostensible authority or the community itself lording it over some other kind of community and how that would violate their rights, like the school trying to tell parents how to raise their children. <laughs> yeah. Right. You can just think of it. You could, you could, you could make up examples of, I don't know, a business trying to tell a church how to 
do what churches do or vice versa. Obviously, we don't have to think too hard about actual historical examples of a absolutistic kind of church, a church reaching too far beyond its own sphere of competence. Yeah. Right. And claiming temporal power as the medieval church did. But of course, in history, constantly, the biggest actual threat are is, you know, whichever group or individual is going to try to coercively enforce its antinormative claim. And if that's not the state, like in medieval periods, it's someone claiming what the state is now claiming, which is its own monopolistic right. So that's the real danger. You know, if a school doesn't have the power of the state behind it, and it's doing something I don't like, I can walk away, take my kids out, whatever. There's no enforcing me under the threat of injury, you know, bodily or, you know, aggression against my property. That's right, not I'm, there. My, my cat is right below my mic purring. I don't know if you guys can hear that or not. <laughs> He's just literally staring at me like, rrr, rrr. <laughs> but, um, yeah. The cat I, interested. Right, yeah. He's really, he's not usually this active in my podcasts, but I guess he's confessional, I guess. <laughs> awesome. Well, there's some other historical things we could bring into it, like what the heck happened in the Netherlands and why everything went bad. I mean, not everything is horribly wrong, but it became quite socialistic in Europe after the world wars, of course. But well, anyway, I hope, I hope people will take a look at what is reformed anarchism there's audio there for that as well yeah we'll definitely link all that as well in the, uh, as the text years ago i wrote a paper that became a presentation so if you looked up on youtube my name and sphere of sovereignty you probably see that presentation at a conference at princeton in 2008 that was just before i became an anarchist that i was presenting that i had written the paper and I've since written another version. So I'll, I'll, I'll send you the links to that paper okay. if people want to read something even more academic on it. Actually, I think it's li linked. And, and it, with each section in the statement, what is Reformed Anarchism, we have like reference citations. And I think it's one of those citations there. Yeah. Do you think, I mean, obviously there's, there's Romans 13, which we've done a whole other podcast on that. I mean, are there other, I don't know, things that, you know, whether they're reformed Christians or not, that people abuse in the scripture or misunderstand that caused them to view those with the authority to, like those acting within the prescribed role of the authority of civil governance, that like they think that those people must have some kind of justified absolute power or special power. Like, is there anything that people... Other than because okay, we've done Romans thirteen, you know, pretty extensively, but I don't know if there's any other things that that people have have misunderstood. I know within with a Reformed Church, there's many who are self-proclaimed theonomists and stuff, and and believe that you know also for some reason believe that the the role of those administering civil governance must be necessarily the Mosaic law and and, and administering those sanctions and stuff. I don't know, maybe, you know, with the little bit of time we have left here, if there's anything there that, that you know, maybe we want to touch on to maybe provide some sort of like illumination or, or correction. So many different directions we could go in. We definitely 
the neo-Calvinistic conception of sphere sovereignty, even though some theonomists have sort of latched on to Kuiper, lesser degree, the Doiverd, because they, he's somewhat impenetrable. <laughs> People have a hard time understanding him, so they don't know what he's saying. Bonson was anti-Doiverd, so I guess that was enough to put them off of it. But somehow they think they can get away with co-opting Kuiper, and that's criminal because his ideas are not compatible with their view. You know, he was uh, a uh, Amil, basically anti-theonomist, like the rest of the earlier reformers, which they they completely wash over. They don't understand the, the distinctions. But anyway, so there's a lot to be said about that, why anything smacking of post-millennialism or soft theonomy is garbage. Let me think... And in terms of what what people will, the tendency of people to, that leads to a mistaken notion or abuse, you know, I, I just, I, I think there's nothing unique about Christians as fallen human beings in that respect. Sure. Um, yeah. The, the, the most atheistic professing to be democratic and espousing equality organizations uh, are rife with oh yeah for sure it's, it's, it's not like it's not like christians Jeez. are I, I definitely would never say christians no. are especially drawn towards authoritarianism it just seems to like but to me like these ideas seem very self-evident but then i mean there's even people a lot of them kind of theonomists but not even just theonomists who even they completely misunderstand or misrepresent even like the type of authority that that parents have over yeah. their children and other types of authority. Like it's just the, the whole concept of authority is just, I think really misunderstood by many Christians reformed and not where they think authority is the right to sovereignly control or coerce people. Yeah. And, and just to mistreat people in other ways because there is a power differential. Yeah. And between parents and children, you know, that there is a legitimate authority. Yeah. And that is partly reflected in the objective situation of whatever parents being adults and their offspring being children for a time anyway. And that dynamic, that arrangement can can go wrong. And then it's natural for people to appeal to whatever is at hand to justify mm. abuses. And so I think that's, that's partially what happens. Yeah. Because if a Christian is recognizing God's authority and part of his intent for normative and flourishing human life is that there are different kinds of communal relations with different kinds of authorities and these as operating correctly or properly should be respected and acknowledged and that's the design for example in the family then because we understand that that's part of reality we're not trying to deny that aspect of the way god made the world then when things go bad we can just sort of use that as a way to perpetuate you know, it's the worst kind of distortion possible, right? I mean, that you would use something good in itself to perpetuate something evil. 
yeah. perpetuate the corruption of that very good thing, of that thing itself that is good. You're using that as an excuse to continue to perpetuate some kind of evil that's going on. It's like the worst. People are the worst. Yeah. <laughs> that's why that's why, that's why anyone who doesn't believe in inherent total corruption and depravity of mankind is utterly deluded. Yeah. Think yeah, that. Uh, yeah, really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, yeah, it's, I always love when, you know, the, some of the irrational like knee-jerk reactions you get from people when they when you like I'm a libertarian or I'm an anarchist, they're like, oh, well, you must believe that all all men are saints. It's like, no, no, actually, quite quite right. far from that. I believe almost the exact opposite. Savior, people. This is what right. Jesus came to save sinners. Amen. Well, I'll yeah. put some links to that in the Yeah, the state cannot save you. But you know what's you know, that's the other error that that theonomists make too, which is like, and this is I'd be I wanted to get your your take on this. They feel like, so like some theonomists will, will kind of like agree with you on some form of limited government, shouldn't be socialistic, shouldn't have, like they'll, they'll, a lot of them, like there's people like Gary North who are actually very educated on economics and stuff, very yeah. good on free markets. But then where the line gets blurry for them is they think that those who are acting in the role of civil governance also have that authoritative competence to... Trying to think, uh, they have the the authority of competence to use that kind of power to punish sin, not just like yeah. any sin, not just people who are breaking, uh, well, violating. Okay, let rights. me. Okay, this uh, let let me. This is a good place to plug my friend's podcast <laughs> that I had mentioned earlier on, because to understand the proper covenantal reform distinctions between old covenant and new covenant, right? That theonomists do not probably understand a, what's sometimes called a redemptive reformed, redemptive historical biblical theology. And in this sense, biblical theology doesn't mean just theology, theology that's biblical, but it's a certain discipline within like systematic theology relative to that. It's called upper register. Okay. Charles Lee Irons, Lee, as his friends call him, goes by his middle name. And if you search for it, it's on a number of aggregators. It's on Google Podcasts. It's not quite on Apple yet. So the ones that depend on that haven't picked it up, but it's on Amazon, Spotify, whatever. So Upper Register, Reformed Biblical Theology with Charles Lee Irons. That's really key. And I don't know how many episodes he's got out, maybe six or so. Down the road, I think he's going to be interacting maybe a little bit with some neo-Calvinism. He and I have had quite an extensive private conversation about these things. Hmm. If you see one of a YouTube video of me talking about Meredith Klein with relation between Klein and Herman Doiverd on some other podcast, that's really inside baseball. I don't particularly <laughs> recommend that one. No one will understand it. But anyway, so Lee and I have talked about these things relative to sphere sovereignty. He's fairly partial to it, I think. So in any case, we're talking about the misunderstandings of scriptural revelation and the difference between the old covenant and the way God organized 
the people of God in this national form under civil government and the difference between that and the new covenant that does not have that same arrangement and is not obligated to those same. Yeah. It's not obligated. So the, so the theonomic conception, theonomic conception is that mosaic civil law is moral and that the moral law must be enforced by the civil government as it was in the, uh, cause it worked so well back then. Administration. <laughs> yeah. And that's completely mistaken that it was that way served what we call a typological purpose. Typology being like a symbol with the added dimension of time. Mm, okay. Right? So it was a symbol pointing to something in the future. And the mm. thing in the future that it's pointing to, particularly is Jesus Christ, but the consummate kingdom of glory at his second return. Mm. So it's not indicative of the new new covenant era of the church before final judgment. Right. It's not determinative for that at all. It is in, in a sort of semi-fulfilled way morally within the church, right? So unrepentant adulterers or whatever, we don't continue to have fellowship with in the church. Right. But like Galatians but, uh, and stuff like that, like Paul talks about what we should do with, you know, people who are living in unrepentant sin in our, in our own spheres and stuff. But I, I don't, I mean, as far as I know, I'm not, you know, saying I'm, I'm the expert on every single line in the Bible. Maybe I'm missing something, but I can't recall a line ever in the new Testament where Paul or any other apostle says, you know, and if there's people outside of your community who are living in sin, you're to go and wield the sword against them. Yeah. And no, and in <laughs> fact, he says, Specifically, Paul says the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> he says, and I, and he says, when I'm saying don't associate with these people, he, sa he says, I don't mean those outside the church. He's like, you couldn't yeah. do that. And if you wanted to, unless you left the planet, that's, that's a rough paraphrase, but that's basically what he says. <laughs> right. So there's no excuse. No. Yeah. And really, it's like, I don't understand how theonomists don't just end up. Like to, to to me, Christian theonomy often very creepily starts to resemble Islam, where it's like, how are you not just justifying create like turning Christianity into a religion of conquest? And well, I'm like interesting that yeah, yeah. In the political development of Islam, the mentality. Well, what I was saying about the state being a pagan notion. Hmm. Part of what makes that so, in some ways, has to do with the inherent religious quality or basis for all of human life and including civil governance. So that, that, that's, a, that's a fact, but that's not an argument for theonomy for a number of reasons. But when you try to take that model, which is this symbolic model of the future heavenly kingdom, when you try to perpetuate that outside of the, the specific covenant arrangement for which it was designed. Remember we were saying, we were talking about like treating other things, attributing to other things that only belong to God. So God's prerogative to have this special design and then trying to perpetuate it outside of, of what he designed it for is usurping God's prerogative to establish 
this kind of religious symbol, you're, you're, you are usurping his prerogative to do that and to have it something that had its limited purpose. It's like reinstituting the sacrifices. Yeah. And they always, you know, they, they make these very flawed arguments. It's just like, well, you're saying that the Mosaic law was bad and doesn't, isn't good for all time. It's like, well, I'm not going back retroactively and saying it was bad back then, but I'm saying it was issued for a specific people at a specific time. And yeah, it, it just fits into the idea. Hebrews, of, just read yeah. the New Testament book of Hebrews, people. It's like, it, it, to me, it fits into this idea, the ideas of, of sphere sovereignty, which is like the idea of, you know, there's different communities, different, different groups, different relationships. And, and, and then I think also like you were pointing on like the, the, the covenantal differences. And then yeah. a lot of, a lot of the stuff that's in the old Testament wasn't bad, but it had, it had a limited scope and purpose, but everything in the old Testament points to Christ. <laughs> well, Besides linking <laughs> to Lee Iron's podcast, Upper Register, I'll also send you a link for show notes. And I'll try to do this sometime tomorrow, by the way, so you can attach it to whatever recording of this. An article by Meredith Klein on the theocracy. So he's kind of he's talking about the special function of theocracy. That might be a little too much in, inside baseball too, but whatever, it might stimulate some people's thinking about it. No, it's yeah. good. The more, the more, the better gives people, you know, sometimes you know, people are sometimes smarter than we give them credit for. And then sometimes they're dumber. So it just, <laughs> it cuts both ways. <laughs> well, uh, when you're interested, when you're introduced to new ideas, even if you're academically inclined and can sort of get into the deep end of the pool, sometimes the more popular introductions are an easier entrance into that. Yeah. So, Anyway, Carrie had a good question here. I mean, we'll end on this. How does sphere sovereignty play with the concept of spontaneous order? Thanks for the softball. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> well, so in the what is reformed anarchism statement, we go on to connect it to other issues in society. In what is what is society? So when I was saying that sphere sovereignty relates to this broader uh, societal ontology uh, as part of what I was saying. So let me, <laughs> I say it was a softball, but then I have to <laughs> actually give it some thought to, to answer it. He choked. Okay, so, he choked in the moment. <laughs> yeah. It's like the wide receiver okay. that drops the wide open pass. Like, so, if we're, <laughs> so if we're thinking about these various kinds of communities and how society as a whole and human life generally or in society is to normatively function. That is, if, if a family is governed by parents, let's say, and let's say a, a corresponding idea of self-ownership for their own community, and a church has its own or any other religious community has its own religious leaders and their sort of governed that way. If these different kinds of communities are not to impinge, improperly impinge on one another, what is it that makes the whole array of these different kinds of communities and different societal relations, how is it regulated? How does it function? Hmm. And this is the genius of the insight 
into spontaneous order. We call it a emergent, an emergent order. We right. think it's actually normed by God. So maybe spontaneous isn't exactly the right idea. But in any case, it's not something centrally planned. Right. And it's polycentric. Right. So let me, here we, we got a phrase here. Let me, let me pull out a phrase. Society is normatively ordered and governed polycentrically. That is, what do we mean by poly, polycentrically? We mean within a variety of relations and particular communities of different kinds. The, the broader polycentric societal complex, <laughs> that's what we're calling it, you know, the whole mishmash, is coordinated emergently through the self-governance of each instance of the variety of relations and each particular community of the several distinct kinds. Now, you might be wondering, and this is according to God's normative design. Now, you might be wondering, how, how does that work? So, giving an in-depth explanation of spontaneous order, I'm not going to try to do that off the cuff in any meaningful way in two minutes. Yeah. But there are resources for that in the statement, what is Reformed Anarchism as well. So in that section, which section was that? Was that C? 2, 2C covers that. And at the bottom, we give some links. There's a historical review from the online Library of Liberty, an article by Norman Barry on the tradition of spontaneous order. That's really, really informative. And then the fee has some various yeah. articles on spontaneous order. Yeah, that, that, that's how that's how the whole societal complex functions, not through any it's through human action, but not through any specific human intent to govern the whole thing. Yeah. And like sometimes I almost feel it's and like I, I get the, the, the purpose of having the adjectives of spontaneous or emergent, but it's like part of me like is just like, well, to me, it's just. It, it is just order. And the problem is people have, like we were talking about earlier, just people conflate order with coercion and, and force. And it's just like, but just think about like, yeah. if someone's committing violence against you, if someone is forcing you into compliance, how, you know, how peaceful and how co cooperative does that feel? I mean, it's just like, to me, true order and true authority, they are, like, I'm not, I'm not saying they are, yeah, I'm trying to be I'm trying to be careful not to like give off the wrong impression. I'm not saying that that authority is something where it's like you're just you know like like parents go to their kids and like ask them, can you please clean your room? And they go no, and then it's like ah oh, shucks, like no, like you oh, know uh, yeah, like authority does give you you know like gives you some scope of ability to 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 command those that are within your authoritative competence to to command, but. Those relationships, if it's a parent to a kid, I guess like the kid doesn't voluntarily choose the parent, but it's something ordained by God. And then in the marketplace, all those relationships, if you don't have a state, well, they were formed voluntarily. So if you voluntarily enter into a relationship or a group and there's rules, then like there is no force. The order is entirely cooperative. And that is actual to me. That is the real essence of order. And the idea that, Order is the op the opposite idea that 
it's through coercion and force. There's nothing to me that is actually compatible with the idea of order. To me, that is chaos. That's that is it's just but right. they've if been conditioned. Yeah. If you introduce coercion in a in an initiatory way on a, other people's persons and property, it's going to be distortive in that. Yeah. Well, it's and just the basically idea of central planning that doesn't respect in a way the natural but through human action order that emerges in society naturally, if that's not respected, the intrusion of aggression necessarily distorts that. Yeah. And let me, let me try to think. So there are forms of authority that, for example, with a business, they're an extension of property rights and that involve planning, right? That involve human design and intent. So an entrepreneur has to engage in basically a form of planning, right? To coordinate his resources and means to ends, do whatever he's trying to do. And that cannot function in society as a whole, one, because it's too complex. Yeah. Right? So the diversity that God, God built into creation and in human life needs to be respected. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we talk about the, hu the hubris of authoritarianism and central planning that they are not respecting the complexity and diversity that God built into reality. And anyway. Yeah, it's complex and yet simple because it's, it's it, it, complex. It, yeah. Like it, it's complex in that, like, it's not like it's one thing. It is a di diverse, you know, number of different things overlapping and interacting, but it's simple in the norms that it operates by, right? Like it's just, it's the norms that God gave us. So I don't think that the, the moral norms that God gave us are complicated. <laughs> well, that's the, that's, that, that's the other part, right? Not, yeah. not only is society too complex to centrally plan and to, to try to coordinate all the, you know, seemingly infinite variety of interests that you could never successfully coordinate, no human being could. The fact that initiating coercion in order to execute that kind of planning is a violation of God's norm. And that's simple enough. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's, that's a good point. Yep. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks. Thanks, Dred, for coming on. I think that was a fantastic breaking down of sphere sovereignty and kind of like the, the Christian and reformed views of, of, of authority and, and, and kind of like connecting these to the, to the, you know, I mean, it's, it, it's kind of a political philosophy, but you know, it's, I've also, I'm trying to get more used to just not like, compartmentalizing my beliefs and just like, you know, like, you know, these things aren't separate and detached. These things are in me, like there, there, there are different categories, of course, and different like, like ideas and, and trains of thoughts. But like, you know, my political philosophy is not like just some weird arbitrary thing that's loosely disconnected from my faith. You know what I mean? That these are all. No, yeah. Thank God. Yeah. I mean, if somehow it was at odds or incompatible you know, we wouldn't be holding to it, but we can yeah. learn because it is, it does come out of, it is grounded in our faith 
discovering how that's the case more and more is we're on that journey together. So it's exciting. Absolutely. All right, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you got the whole way through, I know that was a bit on the longer side, but I hope if you made it the whole way through, hopefully that's a good sign that you found the conversation enjoyable and the topic edifying. Let me know, as always, what your thoughts are. And I love to hear from the listeners, their feedback, whether you want to reach out to me on Twitter at Biblical Anarchy, shoot me an email, jacob at libertarianchristians.com. Or if you're watching on YouTube, you can leave a comment there. As always, please like, share with your friends, subscribe, and leave a review if you haven't already, wherever you're listening. And we will be back again in a couple weeks with more content. Thanks. The Biblical Anarchy Podcast is a part of the Christians for Liberty Network, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. If you love this podcast, it helps us reach more with a message of freedom when you rate and review us on your favorite podcast apps and share with others. If you want to support the production of the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, please consider donating to the Libertarian Christian Institute at biblicalanarchypodcast.com, where you can also sign up to receive special announcements and resources related to biblical anarchy. Thanks for tuning in.